What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Wyatt Smith. Now, Wyatt and I have actually talked in the past about his work. He's worked on some amazing films, including Marvel films, including musicals like Into the Woods. And this episode, we're going to be talking about his work cutting Mary Poppins Returns. So, this is a drastically different film from the Marvel films that he's currently been editing for the last couple of years, and we get into some of the difficult things that he had to tackle to get this film to work. Without further ado, here's my interview with Wyatt Smith. So how did you get involved with this project? Well, I've been fortunate in that I've been working on projects with Rob Marshall for 12 years now, um, 10 years of them being feature films. We've done four features together and one music special, uh, which is how we first met. You know, Rob, we spoke a, a couple of years ago, um, you know, because it was nearly my time on Poppins was about 20 months. But uh, we spoke probably a year before that um, just to start blocking out the time and getting an early script and, and talking a bit. So thankfully, this comes out of just a, a long collaboration with Rob and his team, which, you know, I still can't really believe I get to be a part of. Now, you also sort of jumped into the Marvel world for a bit. How did that help you in your cutting process for Mary Poppins? Well, any cutting helps you in in every process. You learn so much, and you learn so much from working with different types of films, different styles of filmmakers. And you know, as as an editor, I listen to the writing, I see the division of the director, and obviously, there's times when you're working for the producers and the ones paying for it. But the fact is, I'm always working for an audience. So the more you get to experience a film, any type of film, with any audience, and learn what they do and don't react to, teaches you so much. And Marvel's also a great place because as visually rich as their films are, they don't rely on spectacle. And it's great when you get into these filmmaking now where, you know, where you do have a lot of visual effects and then Poppins where these fantasy sequences to make, you know, I, I love that one of the things I've learned so well from Kevin Feige and, and the Marvel family is like, if it's not serving a story, it doesn't matter how cool it looks, just get it out of there. It's not going to be a movie. So there's a lot of even just those simple things that I, I love taking away from the Marvel experience and also being able to dream things onto the screen. So were you able to do that with this film where it was sort of like you had an idea and you could put it forward? No, I mean, Poppins had a, had a pretty clear design. I mean, Rob really had a great vision for this that he mapped out with David and then Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman with the lyric writing and John DeLuca, our producer, who's also a choreographer. This had a very strong structure because it came from, you know, and Peel Travers wrote eight books. So similar to the original film, they were able to pull some, a lot of these little fantasies and vignettes together and then give it this kind of emotional story arc. Um, so the good thing is, is we had a very strong story going into the film so that most of our time ended up really being more about honing performances and, and finessing the pace of the film rather than even trying to just find the film. Interesting. Now, I have one question, and I, I hate this question, but there's so much in this film that looks like it was difficult to cut or to get to work. So I'm wondering, what was the toughest scene that you worked on in this? Oddly enough, the toughest scene um, would be the last thing you'd think of because it's so short. There's a moment in the film where, you know, the way it's all set up is, you know, the children are kind of the adults at the beginning of the film. Their their father is, is broken and, and kind of fraying at the scenes. They've lost their mother. And so they've kind of taken on these young adult responsibilities of caring for each other and running the household and, and being the responsible ones. 
when Mary takes him into the animated world, it develops into this chase, which becomes this real nightmare where the children are reminded that, you know, there's this force that's going to take away their home and they're going to lose everything, the last bits of their family and, and their stability. And when the kids wake up, that's the first time that they're children. And that's when Georgie says, you know, I miss mother. They're finally saying what we know they're feeling, but they've just been hiding um, or internalizing. And finally, it's on the surface. And in response to that, that's when Mary sings The Place Where Lost Things Go, which is the lullaby, to tell them that their mother's never really gone, that she lives inside them and around them. And it's really beautiful and so important for the children to get their perspective and to be kids again. You know, the interesting thing is to cut the actual ballad, the number itself, was quite easy. Uh, Emily Blunt is an incredible performer. She she had Mary down so well, you know, that it was really just a, finding a lot of nuance and never wading through a lot of stuff to see where the good was. I mean, but that transition scene from when these children wake up and are finally vulnerable to when Mary begins to sing, I think it's maybe only a minute long. Um, we worked endlessly on that because the tone of it, the pace of it, the language of it, we tried so many things just to make it feel the most natural and to earn that song that we knew would be such an important song for the kids. You know, you would think it would be the big spectacles or the big dance numbers, but it was really the emotional tone of that tiny little transition of the scene was possibly the hardest thing to cut. Which is so interesting because I totally was thinking the whole bowl sequence, like from when they get into going all over the place in that, that sort of animated world. But that Well, in that respect, that's where I've been fortunate to have worked on the films I have, to have collaborated with a lot of the editors I've worked with and visual effects teams. Working in that kind of green screen environment with proxy actors and props and imagining what it's all going to look like. Thankfully, I've had experience in that. So I was able to help Rob with that process in, in terms of looking past all the green and knowing what was going to be there. The animation team led by Jim Capabianco and Ken Duncan, they had great animatics, you know, storyboard versions of what it would be. And Rob had, you know, has an extensive rehearsal period. So we kind of knew what the dancing elements would feel like interwoven with it. So it wasn't really like a paint by numbers. There was a lot of choice and creativity there, but it was familiar in terms of how to make it. And it was really about just finding the joy in it. The animators, however, what they bring to it is unbelievable because we know that this is where Seamus is going to speak. And we have an actor saying the lines on set. And then we had Chris O'Dowd, who we did a voice recording to. So we kind of cut that voice there. So we knew what the sound of the personality would be. But it's so interesting that we spend so much of our time on performance and we don't know what the performance of these animated characters is going to be. They're hand-drawn. We see a sketch of what a character looks like, but it's months and months and months before you even start to get even just a rough keyframe only, you know, but it was incredible. I mean, the characters, they were just so alive and, and so fun. So interacting with the animators in that respect was incredible. Well, I do want to jump back to the tough scene, you know, with the, the ballad. Did you have to, because you're trying to get that payoff of the children becoming children again, essentially. So did you have to adjust before and afterwards to get it to work? Like um, like how serious they took themselves or things like that? Yes. And it was, it was really about the right amount of space in the scene. You need the air sucked out of the room, but it can't linger too long. And the hard thing is, is every time you make an adjustment in that little scene, you have to kind of watch the entire chase, which is, I think, about four or five minutes. And then the lullaby, which is another four minutes. So even though you're watching this one minute transition, 
you only ever know what it works when you're watching it in, in almost like a 12, 13 minute run. And it was just a lot of trial and error. And, and, and we knew once we had it working, but we wanted to keep exploring every option to make sure that one, we had the confidence and that that truly wasn't any better way to do it. But we're very happy with, with where we ended up. It's, you know, it's hard to wake up, you know, spouting about what you just experienced is almost something a little unnatural with it. And thankfully, Joel did a, did a great performance of it. But it was, it's just odd that that was the thing that became just you know, so emotionally hard to get right. Now, one of the things that stuck out for me was the subtleties with which Emily Blunt's character does things. Like there's these little looks or these little just things down to like she pitches her feet up whenever she flies little things like that. And I was wondering, were there any of those moments that you discovered in the cutting room that weren't in the script, little things that you were able to put in? Oh, so, oh certainly. I mean, a, a moment I personally love and I, and, and Rob loves as well um, was, you know, when Mary first walks into the house for the first time and she sees Michael and Jane Banks after all these years, she's like, oh, well, you used to be like that as a child. And he's like, oh, well, those days are long behind me. And she casts this little glance to him this little look up, this little knowing like, oh yeah, this is this is the challenge. I know we're going to fix this. All those little tiny little eye movements and things, they're just gold. And, and Emily is always there and she's always performing in that way. So it's finding those little things and working them in so that we're with Mary. We're a little on the inside with Mary because he completely misses the look. Like we scour for those because they're so great. Yeah. It's like when Topsy's room is turning and everybody's amazed and you can just see this tiny smile on the corner of Mary's lips and you just know that like, uh-huh, this was all her plan all the time. Nothing in that film happens that wasn't part of her design. That was one thing that stood out for me was these tiny little looks. It gave her character a whole, I, I want to say realism, mm -hmm. made me connect with the character a bit more. Right, because they're, they're not winks. They're not mm -hmm. cartoony actions. They're just very real there's a scheme there. There's a plan there. And it's so exciting to be in on it. I mean, that's what the kids get to do. They're in with Mary Poppins, you know, and now the audience gets to be with her too. And you want to see where it goes. Now, one of the things that stood out for me was there's a lot of tone shifting. So like, you know, jumping back to the bowl scene, you know, it goes from this lighthearted song to all of a sudden the wolf taking the toy, you know, these big sort of shifts in tones. I was wondering how you tackled tone in this film, if you had any issues or if you needed to sort of explore it a bit or work with it a bit when you were cutting? We do. I mean, I like that there's so many tones. You know, the more dynamic you have, the more your emotions get pushed around, the more they can get heightened and, and, and the darker they can go, as opposed to just kind of flatly plodding along. One of the things that also helps that, which is was great with um, Dion Beebe, our cinematographer, and John Meyer, production designer, and Sandy Powell, our costumer, is there's also a lot of palettes to the film. So even when we return to locations, they're different times of day and painted in different lights. So there's always a freshness to everything, which is great. And otherwise, yeah, it's it's really about manipulating pace. It's like with Triple Little Life Fantastic, which I think is nearly a nine minute number in the end. How to cut that in a way where you're not exhausted by it immediately. That, you know, you still want to jump up and cheer in the end, you know, and how to structure and kind of, you know, we restage bits of the dances as we're editing and recutting the music and everything has a new phase to it. Like suddenly now there's ladders and suddenly now there's bikes and guys flipping and then there's torches and then they're back on cherry tree lane and like trying to manipulate that pace so that um, you weren't just sitting there and getting bored with the same thing or that the cutting was so even and predictable 
that um, you just get lulled into a rhythm. Well, you know, you sort of alluded to this, like how much preparation goes into these, you know, you have whole bikes doing stunts, you have flames, you have all this crazy stuff. And a lot of it's going to be pre-planned to the hilt. It's just, it's got to be organized or else it's going to come in in chaos. So if one of those scenes wasn't working, how did you tackle that? Did you have to ever go back for reshoots or would it be something that you could work out? Um, there, there were some things. We, I mean, we did a tiny bit of additional photography, but no different than anything would normally happen on a film. Adeline here, you know, oddly enough, one of the things that was left out, you know, we did test the film once is one of the things that the whole group wanted to know was what happened to the bolt. So, <laughs> you know, which we just occurred to, you know, this whole through this whole crazy number was, was Meryl Streep's top fee. And, you know, they realize that the bowl isn't going to save their house. And then they go off to figure out the next thing to do. And everybody was like, but what happened to the ball? So something as simple as just, you know, getting along with, uh, with Meryl, where she says, and don't you worry about mother's bowl. You come back maybe next second Wednesday. It's, it's simple things like that. So no, there were no massive reshoots or reconceptions or, or anything like that. And yes, things are very much planned out. You know, certainly stunts, we don't want people getting hurt. Certainly choreography, we want everybody to look like the greatest dancer. But at the same time, we always look for the accidents and the mistakes that reveal new things. It never gets so programmed that people are just performing everything robotically. You know, you want the best plan going forward, but then you prepare for was it Sidney Lumet and said uh, the greatest work is preparing for the accident to happen, where it's just, you want all those things. It's And yeah, it creates some editorial challenges, but it's more fun. I mean, a, a simple example is when they enter the Royal Dalton Bowl and they all go sliding down the hill. It's a it's this green plexiglass hill that's created and, and everybody slides down it. And Georgie, the little boy, is meant to fall. But then there's one take where John falls and then Georgie falls and they're all laughing and and it's harder to construct because it's completely against the blocking of everything that it cuts into. But having them fall for real and have fun with it, it's like, oh, well, that has to be in the movie. And then we just figure out how to work all the continuity around it. You know, there's so much joy in having a real moment like that. Yeah. Now, we talked briefly about the animation because this was real animation. So how did you work pacing out with the animators so that everything sort of flowed when you were cutting? Because it works seamlessly where you have these characters interacting with the animation and i'm just wondering how you worked out timing and pacing with them well again it's it's a musical number and so the music tells you everything and you have to remember in musicals your your songs are your themes so you have to treat them like themes you don't just cut like crazy because it's big exciting fast music you have to really punctuate lyrics as if they're the key dialogue of a song and see who's receiving that. So it's a lot like cutting a scene. Yes, you have to imagine what's going to go in there, but thankfully we did have storyboards and we did have concept art and character design from James Wood. So we knew what ultimately it was going to look like. And the nice thing about it again is it's like the shifting palettes I was talking about. It's like the Royal Dalton Bowl is this very traditional flat 2D animation that you hadn't seen in a long time. Then there's this magical transition to outside the tent at night. So suddenly it's nighttime and this carnival and all this. And then you're in this raucous, rowdy music hall. And then you're in this dark, nightmarish chase. So the, the nice thing is, is you know, those shifting tones of environment, again, helps us with the pace and the flow of it because you have a freshness to each aspect of it. 
but then it was you know the key is like i said just cutting for the performances it's like it's we had to have penguins in this movie we knew that every <laughs> any time i've ever mentioned this film from the earliest even ideas of it everybody's like are there, are there penguins <laughs> yeah but it's also amazing to see how quickly a penguin can upstage an actor so so working with the animation team one to get their choreography correct because you know like i am not a dancer but rob and his partner john are amazing dancers and so trying to see things through their eyes and then getting the animators to see that through their eyes, but always keeping Emily and Lynn at the forefront. That was kind of the trickier parts to that sequence. But, you know, again, making sure that the story was there and most importantly, making sure that we never lost the children. This film is really told through those kids. And so with all the things going on, you have to remember that it's being sung to them for them. They're meant to learn from it. So finding the best ways to always keep them completely involved while also letting the audience take in all the words, you know, it was actually, it was a tremendous fun to work on the animated sequence because you just haven't seen anything like it in so long. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, they brought out hand-drawn animation for this. Absolutely. I mean, at one point, I think there were, might have gone up to 80 artists drawing and you learn all the steps. I mean, there's, there were some people who came out of retirement but the other thing that was interesting is when I visited Duncan Studios in Pasadena is how many like 22-year-olds there were. People just out of school who never thought they would have an opportunity to do hand-drawn animation. And you learn what the in-betweeners are is what they mainly were. You have a, you have a lead artist, like a veteran, a truly experienced artist would draw the, the key motions of a character within a shot. And then the in-betweeners go and draw all the frames in between. But it is also daunting because, you know, so much of it's brilliant right away, but some things don't work. And every time you make a note or a change, you know that they crumple up the paper and pull out a new pad. It's really, it's, it's an amazing process. Well, it's, it's nice that they brought that back out again. Mm-hmm. I have one last question, and I usually ask people what their favorite guilty pleasure film is, but we've done an interview before. So I'm wondering what your favorite Disney film is, and that can include Marvel, that can include Star Wars, any other sub-brands. Oh, wow. That's, that's my favorite Disney film. Oh, my God. You know what? I'll just be honest. The very first thing that came to my mind, whether or not it's my favorite or not, is the last movie I ever saw to drive in was Blading the Trap. Oh, yeah? Wow. <laughs> and I remember it so well, like, you know, sitting on the roof of the car with a little speaker box, and, and I loved that movie. It was so much fun. I haven't seen it in years. I know that they're they're actually making a, a live-action version of it at Disney now. But uh, So that's definitely up on the list. Um, and, and truthfully, one of the things that we love about this film is this is a film that Walt would have loved. It feels like the 60s musicals that was such a, a defining era for Disney. Yeah. And I really feel like we harkened back into that. And, you know, I wish you might have seen it. <laughs> I'm sure you would have loved it. Well, thanks so much for letting me interview. Oh, pleasure. So that was my interview with Wyatt. I'd like to thank Wyatt for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.